Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to be talking about a couple of TV shows. Gen V, which is a spin-off, college spin-off of The Boys, the popular superhero satire show that just, just started airing on Amazon Prime. And we're also going to talk about Reservation Dogs, which airs on FX and Hulu, and recently finished its very successful three-year run. It's a uh, comedy drama set on a Native American reservation in Oklahoma. But first, Michael Washburn is here to talk about four new Wes Anderson film adaptations of Roald Dahl short stories, a very interesting convergence of the worlds of books and film. So it's perfect for Book and Film Globe, and Michael will be here right after this musical interlude to talk about these films with me. One of the best cinematic and literary surprises of the fall is a collection of short films based on Roald Dahl short stories by Wes Anderson, who has been very busy this year. He had a movie uh, called Asteroid City that came out earlier uh, this year, in the early summer. And uh, now these have appeared. They first made their uh, made the rounds of the film festivals, and now they're on Netflix for everybody to watch and enjoy. And we have enlisted our in-house Roald Dahl expert, Michael Washburn, to write about them for Book and Film Globe, and he's here today to talk to me about these short films. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Hi. Yeah. So these, um, one of the films is longer than the others. It's called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. And that stars, there's like kind of an ensemble in all four of these uh, films, but it stars Benedict Cumberbatch. And it's the best known of the stories. Um, and it's the longest of the films, but I think taken as a whole, they, they represent, they're, they're really, um, I don't know. They're, they're an, an amazing work of, of movie making. They, they really better than I've seen in a long time capture that sort of vibe of a short story. Uh, and I know that you really liked them and, uh, you know, maybe I'm not as familiar with the actual writing of Roald Dahl, at least not outside of, uh, sort of the children's novel realm. So maybe you can talk to me a little bit about how, what these stories are and where they fit into his body of work. You have to wonder why this enduring fascination with Roald Dahl. More than three decades after his death, we have biographies, Netflix adaptations, and people arguing over editions of his work. Some people might have picked up Matthew Dennison's biography, which came out a few months ago and which I thought was quite good, and I reviewed for BFG. But I think many people still probably don't know the facts of Dahl's life. His loss of his daughter Olivia to measles at age seven, the traffic accident that nearly killed his infant son, Theo, his wife's near death from a stroke. Then there's Dahl's harrowing experience in the Second World War, where he was shot down and he escaped death by a hair's breadth. For someone who has lived a life such as this one, maybe you have to find the humor in all this madness and horror if you want to keep your sanity. That's my theory about Dahl. He acknowledged that he could not refrain from depicting people doing unspeakable things to each other, yet he was a masterful writer, and he was every bit as witty and funny in his way as James Thurber or Richard Connell or one of the other popular short story writers back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. So it's really not so often that such extremes come together in the same writer. 
But I think that they do. And I thought Wes Anderson, whatever else you might say about him, he really brought this out beautifully in the four short films. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my, you know, my, my main takeaway uh, in terms of from a literary sense is that these the stories, I thought they were very faithful adaptations, but they were also just incredibly well-written, classically constructed short stories, you know, especially the three shorter films. I mean, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar is, is good, but you know, I thought that Poison and The Swan and or Ratcatcher were all extremely, um, they were excellent short stories. And, you know, you know, Wes Anderson was very clever, in, but not too clever in the way that he can sometimes be in constructing the stories, you know, using various narrators and having these sort of stagehands move the actors and the props in and out of scene. It, it didn't take away from it. In fact, I think it enhanced it in a lot of ways, and it really brought out the literary qualities of, the, of these works. Okay, so you like that scene in The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, where a guy is at the performance by the uh, old man who can see without using his eyes, and you see this spectator in the audience, and you see, what is it, a bucket being put over his head to reflect what is happening on the stage, what he is watching. I thought that was kind of, I don't know, it was a bit of a, a shortcut. It was kind of a gimmicky thing to do. You, you thought that it worked, and you thought that you, you liked that stagecraft and, and this technique that Anderson used. It was a little tweaky. I mean, it's Wes Anderson, so you know it, it's a bit much. But I, I thought that the the way he did the narrative, you know, the, how how he he would have you know Ralph Ray Fiennes as uh, Roald Dahl in his study narrate part of the story, and then have the one of the actors as the character narrate other parts of the story. I thought that all it all was was pretty effective. You know, it gave it a very literary feel. I, I didn't mind. I liked it in the Swan where they're sort of moving in and out of that hedgerow. You know, it was. It was artificial, but it also, um, I don't know, it was it was fun, and it, and it felt very literary to me. The Swan is a story about a beautiful thing that exists in the world and is perhaps too fine and noble for some people to appreciate. That story really spoke to me. I think that was my favorite of the four. It was very, very eloquent and powerful. The two louts, the two bullies, they see the swan only as a target, and it's a source of wings that they can tie to their human captive before making him jump up a high branch. Everyone will come to the swan with a different perspective and interpret it accordingly. But I think of things happening in the present, people spray painting a statue of Cervantes or wanting to cancel certain books, or even the attempts to expurgate and revise Roald Dahl in accordance with contemporary dogma. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that, that is very true that there, you know, there have been uh, attempts in the UK to um, sort of uh, bolderize and make a Roald Dahl more acceptable to contemporary sensibilities. And I will say, you know, to Wes Anderson's credit, he doesn't do that. He just kind of, you know, these stories are very morally ambiguous. They uh, they, they contain um, some, uh, you know, it's, you know, like poison is a, is is really a, a parable about racism uh, at the end of the day, um, and uh, you know, but it doesn't ever. Um, it doesn't ever stoop to sort of contemporary sensibilities. They feel very much of their time and place. Um, so, I, you know, I, uh, I thought that uh, Anderson did a really good job of, of getting it across and paying tribute to a writer who we, we kind of know is one thing, but, but it was, it was actually, as you said earlier, you know, more complex. 
Well, I have to give credit to Wes Anderson. I think he really brought this off well. And the four stories are very well chosen and they complement each other, or I should say they complement one another. They're different in subject matter, but they are all very witty and dark and twisted and taken together. I think they really give people a sense of, of Roald Dahl. People who are first becoming acquainted with Dahl, uh, they're really going to appreciate this. And yeah, so my hat is off to Wes Anderson and I enjoy these films a lot more than some of his features, which as I've said before, I find to be rather tricky and pretentious and self-indulgent. But what, he, but what he does, what he brings to those features, he brings to these stories, but as you said in, in your excellent piece, you know, really focuses on the literary material. And I, I think that, you know, really helps him uh, and might inform future films of his. You know, and I also say, I also say like um, the ensemble was very good in this. You have Benedict Cumberbatch and Ray Fiennes and Dev Patel, Richard Ayod and Rupert Friend. Uh, that's pretty much the only actors. There are some other smaller part. You know, there's a. Stage ben Kingsley, and, don't forget Ben Kingsley. And ben, King, and ben Kingsley, yeah, all men. It's, it is a very, uh, it's a very dude centric in its own quiet indie way uh, piece of work. But you know, it, but these are you know these are very these are stories with all male characters pretty much. So um, it, it makes sense. I don't know. It, it's really good. It's really good. Uh, I'm surprised at how much I liked it, honestly. <laughs> and I think you are too. Well, people who want to read more Dahl, there's so much to get into. He's got these excellent short story collections, Over to You and Kiss Kiss and Switch Bitch and Skin and other stories. And Skin was a story that appeared in The New Yorker in 1952. And it's an absolutely brilliant story about this man who has the work of a a famous artist tattooed on his back and it becomes very valuable. And I've written about that in the course of writing about the Denison biography. I talked about Skin and why I think it's a brilliant story. And uh, Roald Dahl's genius is inexhaustible. And I, I said before, you have to wonder why there's this enduring fascination. And I think we're probably closer to the beginning of it than the end. Yeah, Roald Dahl, not just Chocolate Factory and the Giant Peach. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's amazing to me that, uh, you know, you're, you were seeing a sort of a an increased appreciation of a literary writer as opposed to a decreased appreciation which tends that's what tends to happen over time so this is a good thing and uh, we have uh, Wes Anderson to thank for moving the ball forward well I really enjoyed talking about these adaptations and about Dahl with you yep All right, Michael thank you so much and we will talk to you soon take care We're seeing a kind of a renaissance or a boom in Native American uh, TV and movie programming uh, right now. There was um, an excellent uh, take on the Predator mythology called Prey, which came out on Hulu last year. And of course, there's Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which is going to uh, open to much praise uh, later this month. But I don't know, sort of the crown jewel of this little mini boom uh, is Reservation Dogs, which is a... Uh, a sitcom of sorts, a comedy drama hybrid that aired uh, and recently finished its run on uh, FX and Hulu. And Omar Gayaga wrote about it for us in this, on this week's site. And he is here today to talk to me about it. Hello, Omar. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you likened um, 
reservation dogs to Atlanta, uh, or, uh, to uh, Donald Glover's Atlanta in some ways, saying it kind of had a similar, you know, it's a comedy, for sure it's a comedy, but it also had that kind of, you know, anything goes creative spirit about it that a lot of uh, more conventional shows lack. Yeah, week to week, you never knew if it was going to be a really, you know, kind of slapsticky episode or if it was going to be an episode that that was very more deep and resonant and, and sad. Um, there's one or two episodes that are actually scary. There, there's one in the third season uh, about Dear Lady, uh, one of the one of the uh, kind of mythical character in the show that is a straight up horror episode. I mean, it's about children being abused in, in kind of reprogramming schools Um uh, I guess in the sixties and seventies, and it, it's terrifying. It's a really scary episode. Um, so, I mean, it, it, you never knew what you were going to get from week to week, like Atlanta, and it, it did the thing of of just being very much of a place and with very strong characters, and just executed it like the highest level. It's just very, very good show. And like Atlanta, it, it you know, I don't think we're ever going to see anything like it again. Uh, that, that that's as high quality. When you mention a place, this place is an Indian, uh, Native American reservation uh, in Oklahoma, right? A fictional, yeah, Oakern, Oklahoma, fictional, but very much of a, of a place. I lived in, I went to college in Oklahoma. I lived there for many years, and and you know, just the you, you see a little more toward the end of the series, some some of the kind of uh, landscape and kind of the area, but but yeah, it, it's it very much uh, is. Uh, set there and and the, the characters do venture out a little bit there's there's a very memorable trip to california but for the most part most of the show takes place on on that reservation and uh the main characters are they're four friends right they're late teens early 20s right they're uh, and, uh, and all, all like high school age yeah and getting close to uh, by the end of the series close to graduation um and uh yeah uh, cheese bear uh willie jack and uh I, I'm thinking on the name the the Willow character, uh, uh, star, uh, um, Alora, uh, Laura Dannon, yeah, Laura Dannon, yeah. Uh, so named after uh, the uh, the oh, sacred after the, the Willow from Willow. Movie, yeah. um, all right, so and they, and they are a mix of uh, of uh, uh, male and female and other, right? Yeah. And they're. they're yeah, they're they're a group of they were a quintet, and and now there's four of them. And, and at the start of the very first episode, if you haven't seen it, the pilot, um, their their friend Daniel had had committed suicide a year before, and so they're all still dealing with that grief and the loss of their friend. And but you know, but the you know every time I try to describe it to people and, and get people to watch it who are not on board, I'm, I'm surprised how many people haven't seen it. It's always like, oh, it sounds really heavy and serious, and it, it sounds like kind of homework. I'm like, no, it's so funny and so. Um, dynamic and, and you know uh, the first episode was co-written by Taika Waititi and it definitely has that that you know quirk and that that sense of humor and that you know it's got characters curse you know it's not it's not some what you would expect it's not it doesn't feel um didactic it's it's really fun to watch yeah I mean didactic or I guess what you would say woke right it's it's like it is it is a, a con it treats them um the characters you know like uh flawed humans and it puts them in you know, there, there's there's some action, there's some car chases. You know, there's there's um there is some some mystery here and there. Uh, and, you know, the, these characters are not saints. I mean, these are not like you know they're they delinquent. they are they are um they are low level criminals in a lot yeah, of ways. The term we keep hearing over and over again is shit asses. They are shit. They are little shit asses. Is what right. These are not the model students. 
No, but over time, over the course of the show, they start to become you know more responsible. They start to kind of understand a little bit more. I mean, in the in the beginning of the show, you know, they're stealing stuff, they're causing trouble, they're vandalizing, and they hate where they live. You know, they hate being there. They just want to get out, um, and they feel like that's what killed their friend. You know, that's why he committed suicide. Was that that place killed them? Is is what, is what they believe. And over the three seasons of the show, they really mature and really get to appreciate you know, what's around them and, and the elders and, and the generations of, of people before them. Um, that's really what the journey is for these characters is, is coming to appreciate the community that they're from instead of hating it and, and wanting to escape. Coming to appreciate their heritage. And w- one of the funnier um, aspects of the show is that one of the characters is repeatedly visited by a, a spirit warrior, uh, but he isn't what you would expect a spirit warrior to be. He's kind of an incompetent, clumsy horseman um, who who died uh, at the la- Battle of Little Binghorn, but not in a in a um, in a heroic way. His, his horse just stepped into a hole and he and he tipped, topped over. Yeah, and- William Knightman, uh, who is played by uh, a brilliant comedic actor named Dallas Goldtooth. Uh, he's so funny in the show, but the trick of it, and I think the trick of the show in general, is that you know, on its face, very very silly, very funny. You know, he curses. He's he's like, ah, I'm just fucking with you. You know, he's very much like an uncle type character. But by the end, you know, the, the, the character who sees him bear comes to respect him so much. I mean, like, he's actually giving him very good life lessons and leading him on the right path just in a very goofy, silly way. And I think, you know, one of the things that's so resonant about the last episode, the, the, the finale that just aired, um, is that full circle of, of kind of bear coming to understand what he's been, what this guy's been trying to teach him this whole, this whole time. Um, great performance, you know, Dallas Goldtooth nails it. He's just such a funny character. And every time he pops up, you think, oh, this is going to get too broad and too silly and it's not going to work. And it, somehow he nails it every single time. I mean, every yeah, time it, his it, character it, pops up, it's comedy gold. Yeah, it's this great mixture of, uh, of absurdity uh, and slapstick and wisdom. Um, and uh, it, and there's, there's a lot of that sort of channeling the uh, elders and the ancestors uh, in the show, which, which I think um, gives it uh, some depth and resonance that uh you know a, a lesser the the showrunner uh starlin harjo i believe is his name i yes. you know he really uh you know, shows a lot of um there's just a lot of skill and, and thought put into all this yeah and and i mean and one one other thing that that's been a running thread through the show is just it's just so well cast i mean there's just been so many ringers uh uh, among you know Native American talent, uh, you know it, we had uh, in the last episode alone, you know we had Graham Greene pop up as an elder. You know we, we we've just had all these really great characters. Um, the actress who is who is getting raves for uh, for Killers of the Flower Moon, Lily Gladstone. Uh, she's not one of the main characters, but but she pops up several times as uh, Daniel's mother, who's incarcerated, and she has a great great monologue in the last episode. I mean, just a stunning monologue. And you say, oh, yeah, she's going to be a star. Yeah, she's going to be huge. Well, you know, maybe, you know, I, I've kind of had this thought that this is going to be a seedbed uh, for uh, Native American talent, much like Atlanta, you know, introduced us to Lakeith Stanfield and Zazie Beetz and Brian Tyree Henry. I mean, it didn't introduce us to them, but like it, you know, it, it made them bigger names. And I, I feel like uh, Reservation Dogs has a, a similar uh, potential. Absolutely. And and then they also had guest stars, you know, who are, who are not, you know, not necessarily Native, but still contributed quite a bit uh, to the show. You know, we had Ethan Hawke play one of the characters, uh, Estranged Fathers, in, in the second to last episode. Uh, and that was very much like a before sunrise, before sunset homage. You know, it was a lot of walking and talking and, and character uh-huh. study. 
so that was brilliant. Um, we had uh, we had a Mark Marin appear in, a, in an early episode that was that was quite memorable. Um, and uh, what was the other one? Um, there've been a couple of great guests. Oh, Bill Burr playing a driving instructor. I mean, we've, we've, it, it, some real kind of heavy comedy heavy hitters. Have yeah. been on the show and and but it never strays too far from those four central characters even when it's dealing with the elders or, or other generations of characters um it always kind of circles back to what the what is the connection to these four kids well the best thing about uh you know there's not a lot of great things about streaming tv but the best thing is is that the show is going to be sitting there on hulu if you have hulu for you know ad infinitum uh until they decide to take it off so uh it, it is I, I see stuff disappearing all the time but this, i know this, but i feel like but i feel like um you know fx shows don't tend to do that uh i you know th- it's there to be discovered right now so let's uh so let's uh do that let's uh, take our our high recommendation book and film glow recommends reservation dogs very highly omar gayaga wrote about it and he i thank him for uh sort of returning me onto it i'm gonna i'm gonna spend the next uh, couple of months revisiting it and, and kind of finishing it up and enjoying it as much as he did uh omar thank you so much appreciate it neil hope I'm, I'm i'm envious that you're gonna get to get go through those three seasons it's, it's really a, a great piece of work so i'm very i am to looking it. forward to it and i will talk to you soon thanks neil All right. Thanks, Omar. So let's talk about another show that's airing right now on Amazon Prime. It's called Gen V, and it is a spinoff of The Boys. The Boys uh, came out in 2019, and it kind of took the pop culture world by storm a little bit. It was a nice antidote to the bloat of the Avengers and Justice League. It featured a team of superheroes. It's based on a comic book. Uh, by Garth Ennis, and it features a team of superheroes called the Seven, who uh, ostensibly look a lot like the Justice League. There's a fast guy, there's a undersea guy, there's a sort of Superman character, there's kind of a Wonder Woman character, but they're all extremely um, sadistic and perverted, and there's a lot of violence and a lot of gore. And The Boys has run three seasons now and um, has really kind of upended all the superhero tropes. It's hard to watch a conventional superhero movie or TV show without thinking of uh, all the ways that the boys kind of takes the genre apart and then kind of reassembles it. Um, And it's still kind of exciting and fun and great to watch, even though it is a gory satire. So what Gen V does is it exists in this universe of the boys. Some of the characters from the boys kind of float around the edges. They're certainly referred to constantly or you see them in TV commercials or whatever, but it applies the formula to um, kids with superpower shows, teenagers with superpowers, college students with superpowers. Really, it's it's a parody of X-Men, which isn't as prominent in the culture right now as some of the other superhero stuff, but it's still, you know, it's still very much a part of superhero mythology. And so these kids, these teenagers, they're, or they're 18 to 22, 23 or whatever, go to this university that ostensibly trains heroes, but really what they do is they take the sort of the most talented and powerful heroes and sell them to corporations and the government uh, for the highest bidder. And the rest of the students who have mild superpowers or mutations or whatever, they train them to essentially be YouTube celebrities or low level TV stars. And it's a really vicious satire of the way that we kind of 
chew up and spit out are young people. And I, I thought the show was really interesting. Or I do think the show is really interesting. They've only aired four episodes because I, it's a really interesting reflection to me of the way uh, Generation Z, this show's called Gen V because they, uh, these kids' parents inject them with something called Compound V, which gives them superpowers. But the show is really a, a satire of Generation Z. And as someone who has raised a Z generation person, I can I can see sort of the DNA of this show. I mean, you've got these kids who are coming up in the world who are being you know, abused and misused by corporations whose government doesn't care about them, who are completely besotted with status and social media. And in addition to that, their educational institutions have failed them. Uh, you know, the school system basically collapsed during COVID universities are not providing the same function as they once did. They're often just kind of uh, day camps and sort of ideological indoctrination factories, and they don't have the same sort of broad educational purpose as they used to. And so they're kind of ripping these kids off. And, you know, Gen Z knows that. They understand full well that they are being ripped off, that they have been sold a bill of goods, and that the world is a pile of shit that they've been introduced to. So Gen V kind of takes that and then applies it to the superhero formula uh, that the boys established. So there's still lots of uh, lots of gore, lots of sex, lots of uh, just completely disgusting ways to use powers and a lot of comedy and great satire. And I recommend it. I think it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's not for everyone. These shows are definitely hard R. They're, they're very gory and they are really... Um, they're not, I wouldn't say they're countercultural. I mean, this is on Amazon, but they definitely run counter to conventional notions of good taste. I know that my uh, 20 year old son loves this show, and I think it's because he, in general, likes superhero culture, but I think he can find something to relate to in these young people who, who are existing in this world that doesn't really serve them, and they're trying to make their way and figure it out and uh, take control in any way they can. And I don't know, I mean, I have, um, I like these characters. I like these young heroes. I have some faith in Gen V and I have some faith in Gen Z as well. I mean, after all, they have been raised by Gen X, which is the greatest generation of all time. The most misunderstood, the greatest, the, the generation that I belong to and therefore uh, I cannot say anything bad about. So Gen V on Amazon Prime, highly recommended from me, Neil Pollock the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. And this has been the Book and Film Globe podcast. And I'd like to thank my guests, Michael Washburn, for talking to me about Roald Dahl and Wes Anderson and an interesting film literature collaboration that's airing on Netflix right now. And also to Omar Gayaga for stopping by to fill us in on the end of Reservation Dogs, a, a terrific show on Hulu that you should check out as long as it is on streaming. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you so much for reading Book and Film Globe. And I will talk to you next week. Audio. Oh. Oh.